0: My name is Shani Jamila and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, my guest is the renowned playwright and screenwriter, Lynn Nottage. Lynn is the first and only woman to have won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama twice. Her plays, which include Sweat, By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, Ruined, and Intimate Apparel, have been produced widely in the United States and throughout the world. Lynn's the co-founder of the production company Market Road Films. Over the years, she's developed original projects for HBO, Sydney Kimmel Entertainment, Showtime, This Is That, and Harpo. A graduate of Brown University and the Yale School of Drama, she currently serves as an associate professor in the theater department at the Columbia School of the Arts. Our conversation, which will unfold over the course of two episodes, is a deep dive into her personal and professional histories. We talk about family, home, her artistic influences, and we begin with a conversation about how she conceives of her origin story. Let's listen in. So I want to just take a moment and kind of begin at the beginning. Okay. I want to talk about your your origin story. What do you know about the circumstances of your birth? I see that you're a Scorpio. Oh, Scorpio power. <laughs> <laughs> Always.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have, you know, it's funny, my origin story. I have a lot of Scorpio energy in my family. Yeah. We're a family of Scorpions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um Tell the world uh, you're yeah. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my origin story, I I, I don't know, know where to begin. I, w- I was born in Brooklyn, New York at Brookdale Hospital. Mm-hmm. I'm a third generation Brooklynite. Uh, my grandmother and my mother were born here in Brooklyn. My father is from Harlem and his family actually um, goes a little further back in New York than my mother's family. They came just before the turn of the century to New York City from, you know, a range of s- Southern states from from Florida, from Virginia, from North Carolina. Like you, I'm really very interested in genealogy and I've begun to take like a deep, deep plunge into trying to figure out who my family is just because there's so many blank spaces. it's In the case of my mother, um, she never really had a relationship with her birth father. And so I didn't know much about those people and just digging in to that ancestry. They're infinitely fascinating people. They were free black folks in Mount Olive, North Carolina. You know, they owned mm-hmm. land. And, you know, looking back through the archives, it seems that going all the way back to the late 1700s, they managed to carve out a space for themselves, which I find kind of interesting and and wonderful. But one story from the family that I find fascinating is because they were free people and they had all this land, I can just imagine um, sort of using creative nonfiction to to delve into their lives is that they were probably constantly under threat.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, there's a point where one of my great, great, great great ancestors gotten to a great deal of debt and he had to put up the one one asset he had and those were his children and so his children were held as collateral by a white man until he could pay back the debt and when he finally raised the money to do it the white man would not release them from enslavement and he went to court (laughs) can you imagine that white man to court he took the white man to court to try and win back his own children. What happened? Um, well, what ended up happening, um, because I think ultimately, and in, in I can't piece together all the archives, I think eight of his children were ultimately put up as collateral mm-hmm. for his his debt. Four of them ran away. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, and ran away. And I don't know what happened after that, <laughs> but... I think one of the runaways was um, my great-great-great-grandfather. My mouth is just
0: literally hanging open. There's so much to plumb, like there's so much inside of that story.
1: I know there's so much, and it's a story to tell, isn't it?
0: It is a story to tell, it is it so is,
1: many- It is a story to tell. And so i trying to piece that together and just figure out, well, you know where, where the truth lies, <laughs> hmm. and how much can be pieced together by the fragments of the archive that are left.
0: And maybe that's even a space for sure archival information, but then also just the entrance of imagination. What what do you
1: imagine? Yeah, yeah. But I'm just going to have to fill in the blanks. But I thought that that was really interesting part of my origin story um, on my patrilineal line, and then on my matrilineal line just going, going back. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was my matrilineal line. So that was my mother's father's family that she never knew. Yeah. And on my mother's matrilineal line, it, you know, we, we go back to Barbados and I would love to go to the, the Bajan archives, which exists in the building and supposedly are very much intact and i had the opportunity to visit it very briefly and try and find out exactly where they came from in africa Mm -hmm. because supposedly you can because um the the plantations kept such meticulous records is that you can figure out where and when your ancestors came and so i would love to do that work that would be extraordinary And, and, and and
0: we're only able to trace our family back inside of the United States. So I don't know beyond
1: that where we're from. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I, most of us don't, yeah. you know, but I endeavor to find out. And on my on my um, patrilineal line, they're from Florida mm-hmm. and from the Bahamas, like from, you know, and Key West from that, you know, all the way. So Bahamas, Key West, um, Jacksonville,
0: so interesting the way the different records were kept in different parts of the diaspora and how they're able to feed
1: or starve us now as a result yeah. of that. Um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. My on my patrilineal line, it's like it's literally a dead end. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I was
0: I interviewed um I don't know if you know Alicia and Jason Moran. Oh yeah, but I just I just put up a two-part interview with them and Alicia was talking about this idea of all the different reasons why we might not know who our people were, you know, yeah. they just did that whole piece about the great migration, you know, so if you have a cousin or an uncle that got on a train in the middle of the night, like perhaps your your ancestors did the ones who freed themselves, you yeah. know, um, from being collateral, maybe they don't call back, maybe you don't know where they went, maybe you don't know what train they took and there are very real survival based reasons yeah, you know, um, for what it means for the people who are left behind, which is also such an interesting part of the story, right? Like. How did we survive? How did we negotiate? What did that look like for us? And how does it continue to store itself in our DNA? You know, like that's really you know, a fundamental question for me.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm also really fascinated by the people who willed themselves to leave mm-hmm. and enter the unknown. You know, I think about my great-grandmother um, at 18 years old, this Bajan woman taking a steamship. You know, she lived in St. Lucie, which is the most rural part of of Barbados and you know her ancestors were sugarcane cutters. I shouldn't say even her ancestor, she probably was a sugarcane cutter. Yeah. And somehow she had, you know, the gumption and the tenaciousness to upend her life mm-hmm. and leap into the unknown.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: As and, you said that I you know which terrifies me because I think even now <laughs> You know, the thought of, of leaving Brooklyn terrifies me, leaving <laughs> another city.
0: But at one point, you weren't sure that you were going to come back, right? Like I remember reading about, um, or perhaps yeah. I heard you speak about
1: this. No, I, yeah, I said that, but, but I grew up in Brooklyn at the time and certainly my neighborhood, which had its its unique challenges. When I left, I thought there's no way I'm coming back. It's like I just want a different kind of life, because I lived on a block where literally and I was talking to a friend recently about this. Everyone either w- went into law enforcement or became incarcerated. Like, those were the two options. And, wow. like, those of us who didn't on the block became artists. You know, we became writers, or there's like one guy who became a magician. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Is that. We used other ways to escape. <laughs> and so. <laughs> I, 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 I think there was a real desire to, yeah, he became a magician, which seems, that seems like too easy. <laughs> to make this, you know, to write about making him a magician. It's just like no one will believe it and it feels, you know, heavy-handed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he, but, but he, he did. Yeah, and I, just, I just didn't want to, I just wanted to sort of break the cycle. I felt slightly trapped for generations here and now that I'm back, I love it and i I can't imagine not have not coming back Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit more about
0: what your what your childhood was like in those early childhood memories what springs to mind for you when you think about your earliest memories
1: um my earliest memories i you know I, i i i think a lot about family um, in particular, my my grandparents, because it, it seems to me we spent an inordinate amount of time at my grandmother's homes. <laughs> my parents just were like, here you go, pick this up, plop, you're going to be with your grandmother. And, you know, and we were really fortunate, particularly my mar- maternal grandmother, who just was one of the great raconteurs and... Just lots of fun, and her home was always filled with people. And so, Mm -hmm. um, some of my earliest memories is just like sitting at that table, listening to people laugh and talk. And and talk. And by contrast, my my paternal grandmother, who lived in Harlem, who was a little more stern and very religious, and not prone to laughter at all. But my cousins were all there, and so when I went to her, her house, it was always filled with with cousins and people who I I didn't see on a regular basis, except for when I was there. And so that was a great deal of of fun. And we'd, you know, we'd roam around Harlem and go to Central Park. And um, it was, you know, I have immensely fond memories. But when I think of my childhood, I do think about my block Mm -hmm. here in Brooklyn and how, as children, we lived outside and, you know, and loudly is that when you got home from school, your parents opened the door and you like poured into the neighborhood and you didn't come home until, you know, the street lamps came on, came on and how your block was your posse and how you had these really intricate, intimate relationships with people who lived in your immediate vicinity. And the block that I grew up was, was immensely diverse Mm -hmm. in ways that I think fuel the kind of work that I do now, because one of the things that I, I think I'm immensely interested in is multiculturalism and sort of the tension of living in a culture in which you have all of these cultural collisions. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that really is at the foundation of my writing, is trying to make sense of how do we survive when we are carrying all of these differences, and sometimes these differences don't align. Mm-hmm. And what do we do with that? And um, I think that that tension is something that I lived with as a child and as an adult have become fascinated by. You know, my block was like Afro-Latino and Black. And there was like a sprinkling of white hippie families. And then, you know, it was one of neighborhoods really early on where LGBTQ people felt comfortable Mm -hmm. Uh, because I, I describe it as the neighborhood where people fleeing their other neighborhoods came. You know, we were the pass through neighborhood. You know, we always felt perpetually marginalized for a multitude of reasons, you know, not just because of economics, but because it attracted people who felt safe in this in this space and didn't necessarily feel welcomed in other places.
0: So interesting, because that's the way I think of New York as a whole, you know, um, for those of us who didn't grow up in the city, but moved to the city as adults, it's because of mm-hmm. what it represented for us, which is the space of freedom and yeah. belongingness you know, I'm really sitting with this idea that you said of being a child who is allowed to live loudly, you yeah. know, and what that means for belongingness and stepping into the fullness of yourself and knowing that these that these are my streets, this is my community, I am allowed to be here in the fullness of myself, instead of this idea of, you know, children are to be seen and not
1: heard. Not heard, yeah. Well, I, I I certainly did hear that when I was a child as well. But <laughs> When you're outside, you know, we could be seen and heard. Inside, when you're sitting with adults, you could have to be seen, not not heard, but but I was just talking to, to some friends the other day and they were talking about just how the culture has evolved -hmm. Um, In part because children aren't playing outside in the same way, Mm -hmm. and we're 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 not creating our own mythology. It's like when we were outside, you know, we built alliances, we told each other stories, we made up games. You know, we had a really full, robust imaginary life that then became sort of the foundation for our adulthoods. But that same thing isn't happening now for a new generation of young people, Mm -hmm. who. you know, sit on their Xboxes and they have the worlds built by others and they're invited to inhabit those worlds. Whereas we didn't have that, you know, we had to will world, 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 world build on our own.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I wonder what it's going to do to the next generation that isn't invited to live outside and loudly in the same way. Or, you know, when they do, it's it, through organized sports. I feel like it's a much more regimented life.
0: Well, it's not even just... Well, not even, I guess what I would say in addition to that is, I almost feel like there's a penalty for living outside in your fullness at this juncture so. or for people in black and brown skin in particular. You jog through your neighborhood, you find yourself in like an right? for instance. So there's all these different ways in which living outside publicly and loudly
1: is now being punished at risk of death. It's always been that way. Mm. <laughs> you know that 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 is that's been the reality since you know the the first ship in 1619 (laughs) landed here is that we we were penalized and marked because of the color of our skin and you know even I I can just tell you in the neighborhood that I grew up grew up in the lines were much more distinctly um, drawn and it was much scarier to, to, to wander outside of the neighborhood if you were brown. It's like I remember uh, my brother, when he was maybe 12 or 13 years old, was at the street fair on Smith Street, which is here in Brooklyn now where all the restaurants are and people just stroll up and down. Yeah. And when I was growing up, there was a dividing line if you were black or Latin, Latinx that you didn't cross. you know I want to say it was it was like Warren Street or, or de and you just didn't put your your toe over that threshold for fear of your life. And I remember my brother was with one of his friends, and they lost track at the this um, street fair, probably eating ice cream, and they stepped into the Italian neighborhood, and they were jumped immediately, <laughs> and 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 beaten up, and a police officer intervened, and rather than saying. Oh, are you okay and penalizing the young people he basically said you guys are in the wrong neighborhood you're lucky. And, but that happened time and time again, so I do understand the danger of like the Armand Arbery's and the Trayvon Martin's but that reality has been with us forever. You know, the only difference is that we now have social media and we now have the ability to amplify those stories so that you know justice can in some small way be served. When we were young, living out loud was the defense that we had, is that we had a posse and together we were strong. There's a lot in that, right? This idea of together we are strong.
0: But then also when you're talking about the 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 fact that they lost track, you know, it's so funny because as you we are talking about these sort of demarcations, these invisible demarcations, mm-hmm. I was thinking about, you know, the ways that shows up in southern towns where there's literally yeah. like you're on
1: the other side of the tracks. Yes. Right. Or, yeah, or yeah the, the, the way roads were placed and railroads were were laid down and highways mm-hmm. crisscrossed neighborhoods and created, you know, these dead zones mm-hmm. where um, people of color were forced to live and, and, and couldn't thrive because there were no resources there. And you know, in, in some ways, I think of my neighborhood is it became the neighborhood that it was because it was deemed, quote unquote, unlivable. And yet, all of this life flourished despite that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about the ways we counter, you know, ideas like that of being told that you aren't allowed to be in this part of town or this neighborhood is not allowed to be yours. We tell ourselves our stories about ourselves. For you, like I'm looking at you now, surrounded by all of this gorgeous art in your home. And I'd love to hear more about your, your family's art collection, how those stories that are told in those pieces on those walls influence you as a young person.
1: I'm sure, it's, I would say my my father was probably the primary art collector. My mother also; she had a love of art. She she studied as a young woman in in Europe. Um, in the 1950s, and I think that she, as a result, was exposed to museums and art in ways many of um, the black women in her generation probably were were not. And so I think she bought her very first painting in Europe <laughs> as yeah. as, a, as a young woman you know it's just it's just a landscape (laughs) that was probably hanging in some small gallery or she may have even bought it off of a, a street vendor but i think it's significant that the art collecting begins there is that she wanted something beautiful in her home that she bought and carried all the way back from from europe and um my my father began Collecting art because I think as a young person, he, and I was just really recently listening to an interview that he did about Norman Lewis, and I didn't know these facts, but uh, apparently when he was young, he he and his 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 cousin Iris, who was a quite quite an accomplished painter who never became famous, and they grew uh, grew up together. They took an art course at um, I can't remember what it was called, but a, a small Harlem art school. Mm -hmm. for the kids in the neighborhood and one of the teachers was Norman Lewis, who was And he said at the time, you know, he was very intrigued by Norman. Norman was older than him, but he studied with him. And I guess maybe 10 years later, they became friends. And so I think that Norman became his conduit and his gateway gateway into the art world. And through him, he began to build relationships with other artists like Romeo Bearden and Ernest Critchello and um, James Juergens, Camille Billups, and all these people who were... Part of his 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 circle, even though he was an artist, he was very close to a lot of them. And in some ways, I mean, my father was an intellectual, and I think that that's what he gave them was was a connection to sort of a world that was academic. And and, you know, he had a big brain and an expansive way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that that as a result, many artists just love to engage with him. And he, I think the painting that I just um, showed sh- showed you, my father bought for a hundred dollars from Norman Lewis, which at the time, you know, so you say, woo. For my parents, that was a lot of money. And um, um, Norman said, oh no no, you, you, you know that, that's 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 too much money. And my father said, no, it's like that's a magnificent painting. I want it. It's a value, Um, I can't pay you the full $100, but I'll pay you $10 a month until I can pay it off. And he said, then Norman burst into tears and he said, why are you crying? He says, you're the first black person who ever bought a piece of art from me. He's like, people expected me to give it to them. He's like, you're not the first black person to have my art in their homes, but he said, you're the first person. When I said, um, when, um you said a hundred dollars and he said that's a good price he says you're the first person who just put the value that i put on my work on it that's literally making me tear up because it has you know and norman used to come to our house periodically when i was growing up and he'd like sit across from the painting and he said this is remains my favorite painting
0: i wonder you know one of the things that this project is exploring is not just um, bloodlines in terms of our lineages, but also this idea of cultural genealogies, right? So yeah. who's, who are the artistic ancestors who, you know, who laid the path for us to walk? And it's not always obviously, you know, directly in your discipline. Um, I know a lot of people have compared you to August Wilson, but you've said, you know, when you got to know August, the investment wasn't necessarily there. It was kind of a paternity a, a man's club
1: yeah, yeah, um, I mean, I think that that's definitely true. I mean, I certainly am a huge admirer of August Wilson, mm-hmm. and I do think that he's part of my creative DNA, and I, um, I owe a tremendous debt to him, but I didn't necessarily feel nurtured and supported by him in ways that other people did, and I felt that, you know, the world that he created was very masculine, you know, to the exclusion of, of female artists like myself. I appreciated your candor in saying that because I know it can be hard to kind of, you know, issue public critiques of people who we revere, so. Um, but. Yeah, but, but I think that that's part of what we have to do. It's like your your parents, it's at some point you recognize that your parents are flawed human beings. And part of, of reconciling that is being able to articulate it and come to terms with it.
0: Who are those artists? I would assume that Norman Lewis would be one, but who are yeah, those I, artists that, that really, um, helped shape your your approach
1: i I think there there are many it's like my one of my godmothers was paul marshall who's a who is a writer and she was one of the very first people to be immensely supportive of me as a writer and would read my work and give me feedback you know Mm -hmm. my mother is like oh lynn has written a story and would you know um, type, you know, help me type it up, and we'd give it to Aunt Paul, who would then give give me very gentle, loving feedback and encouragement, and push me me for, forward. And so I think that she's instrumental in my artistic DNA. And also, I just loved the way she conducted herself in the world. Is that there was a grace with which she approached everything. And I think of myself as a quiet storm, a gentle spirit. And so often when I saw other African American women. Um, writers is, is is, there is kind of a robustness and living out loud and, and being sort of hyper articulate and, and out there. And I thought that's not who I am. And I feel like Paul Marshall also is not that person. And so she, in many ways, um, gave me a roadmap to navigate this world as sort of a gentle, slightly introverted, shy writer who tells stories and wants those stories to be in the universe but doesn't necessarily want to be constantly out there pushing them. Um, You know, and I I think that a big part of my artistic DNA is certainly the African American women writers who came on the scene in like the 1970s, I mean, I feel blessed that I came of age in a moment when there were so many stories being told with protagonists who looked just like me. Even if they weren't urban stories, they were still black women, a lot of times around my age and I could lose myself in those worlds. You know, the books that were written by Toni uh, Morrison and I remember like Alice Walker's Color Purple, literally, I have to say that book kind of rocked my world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I remember reading that book and thinking, oh, there's many ways in which you can tell stories. I felt that f- formally it was so different from some of the other things that I wrote and closer to the way in which I, my imagination wanted to share narratives. I mean, it's almost because it's written in the form of la- letters in its first person. It was, it, it felt like a series of monologues. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I can tell stories in, in that way. But I also read books um, by like Alice Childress and Louise Merriweather. And, you know, I just felt like there was, oh, Rosa Guy, there are so many places to lose myself. And I think that without having sort of collided with those individuals at the right moment, I probably wouldn't be a writer, you know, I may be a teacher or be something something else. And But the other ingredients I think that were part of my cultural DNA is that um, one of my mother's closest friends was Lonelle Hempel and she was married to Julius Hempel, who's part of the World Saxophone Quartet. I played the flute. I went to the high school of music and art. And so I was playing the flute and he loved to like, he's like, give me that flute. <laughs> Let me show you how to. <laughs> and he'd be like. <laughs> I'd be like, oh my God. He'd be like. <laughs> and I just think about. How he just took that flute with so much gusto and just played in ways that were uninhibited and freeing, and I thought, wow! When I'm in school, I'm locked into the notes on that page, and this man's like, you do not have to do that. Yeah, you just make music, and that was really freeing and and liberating. And by the same token, I had this um, piano teacher um, who's a jazz musician named um, Sunilius who also, he's like, yeah, get rid of all these books. He's like, we are just go sit down. He's always, he was really funny because he'd come to teach me piano. And he always, when he got there, he's like, I need a glass of wine before we begin. <laughs> I know that's okay. <laughs> and, and, and like, as like a 13-year-old, I'd have to go and like pour Cornelius a glass of wine. And he'd be like, thank you. And like midway through the lesson, he'd be like, I think I need another glass of wine. <laughs> And we played, he'd be like, Doodle. once again, he just was like, we're just gonna play the piano.
0: It's awesome.
1: It was really, and so I, I think of just the way in which those artists liberated me from sort of the confines of what was expected or, you know, the traditional ways in which people were taught and from the page, from mm-hmm. sort of the notes on the page. Those are actually the two instruments I studied as a
0: child too, piano and flute. Okay.
1: Um,
0: but I, I, okay. I'm no good at either one of them. I have to say anymore. I think if I'd given more discipline to piano in particular, because my father's a pianist, that I could have really, oh, wow. you know, cultivated something there. Are you? Do you still play either one?
1: You know, I, I I I don't play the flute at all. And I came to the flute because when I was at music and art, we were required to take an orchestra instrument, and they had assigned me to the bass you know, the standing bass, and I got to the class, and I was the only girl, and the guys made fun of me, and I'm like, I wish that I had stuck it out. I wish I had had the tenaciousness to say, fuck all of you guys, I'm going to play the bass. I thought, no, I'm going to play the flute, and it felt much more delicate and and easier to to learn, you know, felt, and so I, I, I played that bit, but the piano was my primary instrument, and my son's now studying it, and my my fa- father in his 80s also studied the piano and I can still like read music when push comes to shove. And every once in a while when my son gets stuck, I can sit down and like play him the song as it's supposed to sound. But I don't really practice. I think that at some point I realized when I was studying music that I was never going to be good enough to make a go of it. And that became an impediment to progress.
0: Well, luckily you have so many other talents that were bubbling up. I mean, <laughs> You are also tremendously skilled in
1: math. I was, yeah. Please use yeah, past tense. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now the bill comes. I'm like, oh my god, I want to do this so easily now. <laughs> it's, it's like I have to struggle. So funny.
0: So I'm picturing this house. There's, there's, you know, your grandmother, as you said, had the kind of laugh that started conversations. You know you have all yeah. of these amazing pieces of art on the walls and these artists and musicians coming through you tweeted recently about the the foods that were part of your childhood and fried catfish and pickled pig, pig's feet and chitlins yeah. and i'd love yeah. to hear more about that
1: part of the story too just to you know fill out sure sure i mean i i think that food was really at the center mm-hmm. of my family life it's my mother was a great cook my father was an amazing cook my grand both of my grandmothers were, were fantastic cooks, but, you know, very different cuisine. It's my maternal grandmother because she had roots in the Caribbean. You know, the dishes that she made were like cuckoo and um, flying fish and lots of sauce. I mean, that was the dish that she, you know, that was her go-to. It's like when you went to my grandmother's house, you know, the first thing she put on your plate was a, like a two tablespoons of souse with, with everything. Described souse. When our ancestors were enslaved... You know they were given the scraps, and because we are improvisational people, we turned those scraps into something magnificent. And so you know, imagine souse is this desire to take you know the the snout and the the pig's ears and the pig's feet and turn it into something that that's delicious. And because they're very, very tough parts of the um the pig, you had to um, ferment them mm-hmm. for a while. And so souse is really, onions and um, the, the pig's parts, the undesirable pig's parts, pickled for a period of time until they're ready to eat. I love and, the
0: story of it because it's such a, it's emblematic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, but, but, but it was, growing up, it's del- delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I've tasted sauce now since my grandmother died. Hmm. Like I can't. I don't know anywhere I would go. I don't think um, folks in my generation make souse anymore, which makes me very sad. I mean, I think of all those dishes that are lost. I still make um, a number of the, of my ancestral dishes. Like um, I still cook a lot with 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 codfish, with dried codfish. I still occasionally will, will make dishes not occasionally I actually do with with cornmeal (laughs) on my father's side because they're southern you know it was like traditional southern food (laughs) so it was fried chicken and fried catfish and and greens and chitlins it's like my father just always insisted when I was growing up like once a month making chitlins that would like stink up the entire house and he's like we're gonna do this Right. You know, between those chitlins, it was just like hell for a day.
0: As I'm envisioning this 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 childhood home of yours that you have the amazing um you know, really I think fairly unique story of being able to raise your own family inside of now.
1: Yeah. Know.
0: Um to me it's it's the it's the spirit of the food it's the spirit of the art, it's the spirit of those things that uncle norman left behind it's the spirit that literally shook your home when your mother transitioned yeah would you mind speaking a bit to that story
1: sure i mean that's it, it's my my mother who who was an incredibly beautiful human being i mean she was a beautiful woman physically but also just you know she radiated warmth and joy and she was a school teacher and she was an activist and um, as I had mentioned, she had um, Lou Garrett's disease and ended up dying relatively young um, without fully completing her story because there was so much more um, that I felt she wanted to accomplish and wasn't able to do to do it. But when she, she died, and I, I think about this often, she, well, before she died, she had told me she wanted to die in the house and we wanted to, to make that happen. But at the last moment, when she couldn't breathe, I panicked and I called the ambulance. And when they arrived, I'm like, no, 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 you can't take her body. And they're like, we kind of have to, we can't. We have to do everything we can to to keep her alive. And they took her to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, I thought we were going to just say goodbye there. I asked them to take her off of life support. But my mother really, um, she was a fighter from you know the time I imagined she was born because my grandmother was very very young when she had her and they managed to have this beautiful life with very few resources and my my mother hung on for 18 hours waiting for her mother to get to the hospital the minute my grandmother walked in we said the lord's prayer with my my brother and and some of my mother's best friends and my mother died which is is significant for for the story and You know, we we sort of wept and were asked, as you are, to leave relatively quickly from the hospital. And we came back to the the brownstone, the brownstone where I'm currently living, and the phone rang. Just as I stepped into the door, I answered it. and It was one of my mother's friends who she hadn't seen in 10 years. And she said to me, is your mother all right? And I said, why do you ask? She said, well, I was literally just standing in my kitchen. I turned around and your mother was there. And I said, well, what did she say? She said, it's OK. Mm. And I said to her, I said, well, Shirley, my mother just died. And I said, well, why did she come to you? And she said, because I'm open. Huh. And then after that happened, we, there was an enormous explosion in our house. And this boiler, which was truly an ancient boiler, it was probably the original boiler when the house was built, exploded. The entire house shook. And then mm. it shed, sent this figure. All the way up um, the chimney to the very top floor and then the walls began to weep and so the house literally looked like it was crying Whew. and this is all within an hour of my mother's death you know was kind of one of these magical realism gabriel garcia moments <laughs> <laughs> that we were living in real time yeah she didn't leave easily she she just wants to let us know I'm here, and it's okay.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can follow us on Instagram at Lineage Podcast and visit LineagePodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch my new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from Season 2 Lineage guests and was produced with the Park Avenue Armory. The Lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images, and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneyjamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday.